Voyage. For years, Don Bowles had worked as an investigative reporter for the Arizona Republic. He had won awards for his stories on government corruption, mafia infiltration of racetracks, of land fraud involving organized crime. The people here say that is why he was killed. He may have known too much. Bowles had given up investigative reporting eight months ago, saying the work was too frustrating. There had been threats on his life. But a telephone call lured him here to the Hotel Clarendon, June 2nd. An informant had promised to meet him here with information he claimed linked Senator Barry Goldwater and Congressman Sam Steiger to an Arizona land fraud scheme. Bowles gasped four words to bystanders. Mafia, Emprise, the name of a New York sports concessionaire which once owned a piece of six dog racing tracks here, and John Adamson, the man Bowles later identified from a hospital bed as his informant. It was Emprise money which bailed out an Arizona firm controlling six dog racing tracks. And in 1972, Emprise was convicted of conspiring to hide ties to underworld gambling interests in Nevada. Voyage Media presents The Patsy. Bradley Funk of the Emprise Corporation that controlled the Arizona Dog Racing Syndicate contended that there was a conspiracy all right, but it was a conspiracy to bring him and his family down. According to Funk, that conspiracy was made up of the government, Don Bowles, and of course his ex-wife, Betty Funk. Investigative reporter Don Devereaux tracked the skim money relationship between the Emprise Corporation and the Mafia as exposed by Don Bowles. The dog tracks in Arizona sold periodically from you know, one devious person to another more frequently than not. But the, the sales prices were also curious in that they tended to be at vastly higher figures than the tax revenue would tend to support. It was pretty clear from the dichotomy between the, the value of the tracks for sales purposes and the income being reported for tax purposes that some of that income, in effect, was not being reported, that there was a substantial gap in the, at the income level uh, that made the tracks ultimately be more valuable than they appeared to be from, from an income point of view. And that strongly suggested that the tracks were the, the subject of uh, uh, skim money, uh, that the mob, in fact, was not getting its piece of the track with stock, but by taking a certain amount of cash out of the operation in a high cash flow business which gambling and liquor and booze and groceries and all the stuff they were selling down there, the meals, allow us to have. When you have a high cash flow business, it's pretty easy to skim it. And so the thrust of all of their conversations tended to point toward the mob being involved in this thing. Um, and this was back when Don and Brad were becoming pretty serious enemies to begin with because of... Uh, Don's interest in the tracks going in. But Don's testimony before the committee was probably the first serious salvo of his that began to really raise concerns in the Funk's mind about Don as an adversary, as a journalist who was shooting off his mouth about the tracks. And uh, they began wiretapping him in 1970 as a consequence of that. But the lawsuit was settled out of court in 1973 without any firm resolution, which should have gone Don's way. Don was called in one morning by the publisher's office and told it was being settled, uh, and it was not settled in favor to him. Uh, he was told it was the way it had to be. Uh, he was given some money under the table to take a vacation, and when he came back, he was transferred from investigative journalist role to a uh, reporter at the state capitol covering the state legislature. 
and told to leave the function of Enterprise to Hill alone thereafter. Uh, I can't prove it, but I know somebody at that paper looks to have been blackmailed in 1973. Something fishy happened, and I suspect that uh, the blackmail is part of it. Uh, my source on that subject is impeccable. Uh, he had already had the mob and the dog track people as clients for some other electronic work he had done, and uh, including the phone tapping of Bowles and Steiger back in 1970. Uh, he was involved in that as well. Um, I believe him. In my mind, even way back then, uh, it would have had to have been a boy or a girl, somebody underage, if you're going to get real leverage with it. Who wanted this kind of leverage in the state of Arizona in 1976? According to Don Devereaux, it was Joe Bonanno, head of the mafia in Arizona. The Bonanno organization was extremely good on Joe's behalf of psyching out the weaknesses of anybody and everybody they were interested in. When Bonanno could talk about Babbitt, he's only got one way to go. I think Bonanno was in the same relationship with somebody at that paper at that time. And bear in mind, you know, Bonanno didn't have any particular interest in killing bulls or anything else, and he wasn't directly involved in it. Bonanno's interest in all of this and helping to orchestrate leverage, which he certainly did, was to keep uh, his friends, Emprise and the Funks, in ownership of the dog tracks because he was their silent partner. And he was protecting his business. It was just that simple. Uh, he would do anything he possibly could to make sure that the mob continued to have a piece of those tracks. And if it got sold to people that they weren't in a relationship with, they might have lost a very lucrative piece of uh, their income. And so uh, Joe Bonanno would have gone to any length necessary uh, with people like Babbitt or people in the publisher's office at the Republic to do what he needed to do to create leverage. And I think he protected Emprise and the Funks in 73 with blackmail. And I think uh, it probably pertained again in 76 and that would be why when the paper picked up all of Don Bull's work that he'd done with, with, uh, with Tom Sanford on the dog tracks from, from 73 to 76 when he wasn't supposed to be doing it, all that stuff got destroyed by the newspaper. Uh, they had to have a reason for doing that, and I can't think of any other reason than somebody told them to. My name is Jack Weaver. I was assigned as a sergeant to the, the organized crime unit. During that time, you know, as this was all happening, I took it upon myself. I took the file out of the intelligence unit file. I retyped the uh, index cards and stuff. And I read documents and information to pertain to individuals. And I was afraid that the state would destroy their lives along with other, like, you know, that just happened to be there or would be convenient. When I left the department, I, when I re resigned and started running my uh, restaurant business and, and stuff, I turned those cards and things over to Daryl Smith. I did it on my own because I knew the, the attorney general's investigators and working under Babbitt I knew that they would mishandle, or if they need to cover their ass, the people mentioned in the file uh, would be set because these were uh, top-ranking business people and stuff throughout the Phoenix area. I knew that they would use it in a nefarious way 
through the uh, news media to jeopardize these people to save their case. I presume he's talking about the, the Emprise intelligence file, the 851 file, which was something he got interested in in 79. And the intelligence unit was afraid that under a subpoena they might have to release stuff that they had received in a confidential manner from other law enforcement agencies. And so what Sparks was telling Weaver, uh, get that stuff out of the file. And Weaver then told Harry Hawkins, get that stuff out of the file. Uh, Jack Weaver did not originate that order. When the shit hit the fan later on, the effort was to blame Jack Weaver for this. You know, Weaver ordered the purging of the file. Well, he was simply the middleman between the lieutenant and, and uh, Hawkins who was asked to do it. From the attorney general's investigators who were stupid. Absolutely, they didn't, they had no business being involved in that investigation. And frankly, that's how Max Dunlap and Jimmy Robeson got stuck up in the, uh, the stupid, but the state under uh, Abbott, they had a preconceived idea of where they were going and they wanted, they did not want any interference from any of us in the intelligence unit giving them information on anything that would uh, just, uh, was opposite of uh, their focus on their investigation. They had tunnel vision or a preconceived uh, game plan. Well, what's the difference between corruption in, in New Jersey and Arizona? I said, uh, New Jersey has a coastline. Barry Goldwater was nothing short of royalty in the world of Arizona politics. In 1964, he was nominated by the Republican Party to run for the President of the United States. Ours is a very human cause for very humane goals. This party, its good people, and its unquenchable devotion to freedom will not fulfill the purposes of this campaign, which we launch here now, until our cause has won the day, inspired the world, and shown the way to a tomorrow worthy of all our yesteryears, I repeat, I accept your nomination with humbleness, with pride, and you and I are going to fight for the goodness of our land. Thank you. Though he was soundly defeated by Lyndon Baines Johnson, this did little to diminish his influence in his home state. Without a doubt, few major political or financial schemes, especially those done under the table, would have flown under his radar. Barry Goldwater uh, became prominent in, in Phoenix politically back at a time when the mob was all over this place because of the, uh, the, the blind trust system and the money that came into the banks here and everything else. And he was, you know, close friends of, of the, even the original Jewish mob guys that were here, the Greenbaums and Willie Beoff and everybody else. I mean, people like Joe Bonanno were frequent guests at the Phoenix Country Club. I mean, everybody socialized with everybody back in those days. And the boundaries between political prominence and organized crime prominence were kind of blurry. Uh, and so Babbitt knew all these people. And, and uh, uh, pardon me, Goldwater knew all of these people and, 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 and socialized with them and hung out with them. and. Uh, didn't think much about it. Um, Barry was also involved through Neil Roberts and even John Adamson in some other things that were going on at the time that Don was killed. When Don Bowles was car bombed in, in, uh, in 
June of 1976, with all this other background going on between Goldwater and Neil and Neil Roberts and, and John Adamson, uh, Goldwater was concerned that uh, somehow he might get dragged into this whole mess because of his involvement with them and some other stuff. And I think he was even worried that maybe Neil had overstepped when, when Goldwater had asked Neil to keep Don Bowles away from his doorstep. Uh, that maybe Neil Roberts had overreacted and, and, and killed on behalf of Barry Goldwater. And so he or some from, someone from his office uh, phoned Neil Roberts uh, two or three times that afternoon of the bombing to try to find out what the hell was going on. He was that concerned. And Neil ultimately collected $25,000 from Goldwater to help fund the Adamson defense when it looked like uh, John was going to need some money to defend himself. Neil Roberts wife Angie was shown an envelope by Neil with $25,000 in it, which Neil Roberts indicated to her had come from, from Goldwater to help pay for the bill. But I don't think Goldwater had anything to do with it. I think he was just concerned that because of his other involvement in some less than nice things with these people, that somehow this could spill over and get him dragged into the, uh, into the Bulls thing. And uh, so that's the reason I think he was calling and even contributing to John's legal defense fund. He wanted to make sure that they kept him the hell out of it and, and did whatever he thought he needed to do to, to make that happen. I have no reason to believe that Barry Goldwater ever said, you know, kill the guy. I, I don't think that remotely would have happened, whatever else might be true. Uh, I don't think that was ever on the, in the cards. But I think Barry Goldwater was certainly concerned that he could get politically embarrassed. According to Don Devereaux, from his website, Devereaux Reports, Tucson-based Joe Bonanno clearly was the mafia boss in Arizona back in June 1976 when the Phoenix reporter Don Bowles was the victim of a fatal car bombing. Since Bonanno, in that capacity, oversaw the mob's silent partnerships in all six Emprise, Funk, Greyhound racetracks in the state at the time, he wouldn't have been pleased with Bowles' persistent investigative reports to make public the skim-money relationship. And Bonanno must have been even less pleased by the reporter's dying words, attributing the lethal attack on him to folks tied to the dog tracks and the mafia. Uh, my name is Robert Dillinger, and I'm a former inmate at the Terminal in Federal Prison on Los Angeles Harbor. I was editor of the prison newspaper, and I also taught a creative writing class. And one of my uh, students was Bill Badano. So that when I got out of prison on parole and started my writing career, I was writing for the uh, Los Angeles Times when Bill was released from prison. Joseph Bonanno, who was the chairman of the Mafia's National Commission in 56, was the family leader. Bill Bonanno was his contigliere, which was the number two in command. Uh, so Bill had, was privy to the inside workings of the Mafia, of that particular family, and a lot more. Uh, Mr. Bonanno, was a very big property owner in Arizona, primarily in cotton fields. And uh, he uh, uh, had a lot of, of investments. So it was rumored uh, that they, the Boyles was hit because of a bad property 
uh, deal. And that was, as I recall, I don't have, I can't remember the full facts, but the allegation was that was that the, the Browns were might be involved in some way. So I was talking to Bill, and I said, "Look, I cannot afford to have my name associated." <laughs> with a, a group that, who goes around killing newspaper reporters. Um, I, can I, uh, but I do need uh, material for the book that's going to attract a New York publisher. What can you tell me about the Boyle's killing? Basically, that's what I asked. And Renato looked at me and says, nobody's mad at nobody. And that was mafia shorthand, but it wasn't a mafia hit. So what I think happened was uh, the mob guys who were really concerned about this whole thing because they didn't want to lose the funks and emprise and the tracks and everything else to a uh, homicide. Uh, they wanted to keep their empire intact. Uh, they were quite concerned about the wild card in town. They had Babbitt under control, they had the Republic under control, they had everybody else in their pocket. The one thing they didn't have was the Arizona Project. 36 reporters led by Bob Green coming to town as a complete wild card. What the hell are, what the hell are these guys going to do? We might not accept the plea deal. We might, we might be determined to follow Bull's dying words. We might you know, go off in some other complete direction and mess the whole program up. So I think they were quite concerned about that, and I think they would have thought about how the hell can they rope in the Arizona Project. And the way you do that, very frankly, is you make them part of the deal. You make Bob Green part of the solution. You make him a facilitator for the confession that leads to the resolution of the case. You give him an ego investment in all of that and, and make him proud of it, make him a vanity work in this thing. And Bob Green's vulnerability, the only one he really had, and it was huge, as huge as he was, was his ego. Bob had an ego that was immense. And I think by, by making him a part of the plea deal confession, they, they, they roped the Arizona Project into endorsing it, which effectively we did. And I think this was the only way to get it done. I think, they, I think this was very clever. And it took me a long time to figure that out, trying to figure out what the hell happened here that caused this to go down. But I think Bonanno figured out the weakness of the Arizona Project, which was Bob Green's ego, and he made us part of the deal uh, very cleverly. He, he made us part of the confession, and it worked. I think he, uh, he castrated us in his own sort of way and, and made sure we didn't look in some other direction, which we didn't. Um, very clever. So I think the powers that be wanted to get a conviction that took in some direction other than the dog tracks and the mob. I think that was one of the initial objectives. I don't think the powers that be in a broader sense gave a damn who that was, as long as it wasn't the dog tracks and the mob. I think it could have been anybody other than Max that worked, but Max was available. Uh, but I think they wanted to convict somebody. And they might have even, as, they might have, even um, have expected that the case would be overturned eventually. I think what they wanted to do was have a case they could prosecute, get a conviction, went in some other direction, and, and if it ultimately got overturned, that'd probably be the end of it. As far as they were concerned, they had done the job, and if on some technicality the guys beat it, so what? And that would probably be the end of that. The world would move on, and, and everybody would be happy. Um, I, think, I think it could have been anybody, but Max was the guy that Neil Roberts focused on. Um, and it could have been, if he'd had a hard-on for somebody else at the time, it might have been somebody else if they could have made it work. 
I think Macs were just available, accessible. According to Devereaux, all of the powers that be who had a vested interest in getting rid of Don Bowles, the Funks, and their mafia partners, and Emprise, and the people in political power seats in the state, facilitated the conspiracy. But when Bowles unexpectedly survived for 11 days after the bombing, long enough to finger the mob, they needed a story that pinned the blame on someone other than the guilty parties. According to Devereaux, this is where a mobbed-up attorney, Neil Roberts, the fixer, comes in. Remember, after the Bulls bombing, he's the one who provided the police with his theory of the case, which fingered Max Dunlap as the mastermind of the plot. I think that as it became apparent that to my dad that he was being set up uh, by Neil, um, I remember him saying how shocked he was. I guess he had heard from other people that Neil had some shady dealings with other people, but I think my dad always felt like they'd gone to school together and there was some connection and, you know, he trusted him as a friend. And I, I don't think my dad had any idea of the people or the type of people that um, Neil hung with. We didn't, or as far as I know, he didn't, we didn't learn as a fan, none of us knew anything about it. And we learned it later on. I mean, I'm going to say long after even the first trial, we just had no idea that there was that kind of power in Phoenix. We thought it was just a small city. We were all pretty, pretty naive. Arizona in the 1970s still had one boot in the Old West. People relied on their friends and neighbors, and there was an implicit trust to which Max Dunlap fully subscribed. But what he and many of their friends and neighbors did not realize is that the mob had moved in. The old rules no longer applied, and Max Dunlap found out the hard way. On the day that um, my dad was asked to come down to the police department to, um, I think they wanted to talk to him. And, uh, and then I think at that same meeting, they asked him to take a polygraph test. And, um, as it turned out later, I guess it was not a very smart idea for him to go by himself without an attorney. But again, my dad, you know, in his head has told me many times that, you know, he did nothing wrong. He had no part of anything. Why would he be afraid to go talk to the police? That's why he went without an attorney. Um, but, you know, through the years and years after, visiting my dad and talking about it because it's pretty much all we talked about every time I visited him was the case and what was going on and he would say you know how stupid he felt for doing it and that he learned you know valuable lessons that uh, sometimes being honest you know doesn't pay off <laughs> really one man who had a pretty good sense of this is Harry Hawkins, a detective with the Phoenix Police Department. As private investigator Lake Headley recounts in his book, Loud and Clear, Hawkins had great reservations about the conduct of his department on the Bulls case. I never thought Dunlap and Rubison got a fair shake. At the time of the Bulls murder, I worked in the detective bureau assigned to the organized crime section. You worked intelligence, so you get a lot of unsubstantiated information. Rumors from the street, that sort of thing. 
where for years we've been putting together a file on the Funk family, their connection with Emprise, also, in general, what went on at those racetracks. <laughs> that file contains some heavy shit. I guess the brass got nervous or something one day toward the last of September 1976. I get a call from Sergeant Jack Weaver. Weaver says, Harry, there's a lot of material in that funk file that might be subpoenaed when the case goes to court. Take this key and open the door over there. Inside that room, you'll see a table. On that table, you'll find a file labeled 851. We want you to go through file 851 and take out every piece of paper that connects the funks to organized crime, Emprise, or John Adamson. Take out everything that might damage the funks in this community. When you're done, I want you to renumber the file pages and recopy them so no one can tell that anything has been removed. Got that? So that's what I did. I gave that material to Weaver, and it's bothered me ever since. For three years, Max Dunlap and his supposed co-conspirator, James Robison, had been languishing on death row with little hope to have their convictions overturned. By that time, the state's attorney general, Bruce Babbitt, was now Arizona's governor with an eye toward running for president of the United States. In effect, the plan which had been put into motion to pin the bombing on a patsy had worked. All the other parties, the Funks, Emprise, and the members of the Mafia had continued their lives and business activities as if the Bulls assassination had never happened. For the Dunlap family, life had never been the same since that fateful day in June 1976. Despite new exculpatory evidence unearthed by private investigator Lake Headley, Bruce Babbitt's hand-picked prosecutor refused to admit it into the record. At this point, the only hope left was a review by the Arizona Supreme Court, which, as a matter of course, was bound to examine all death sentence convictions before they were meted out. February 25th, 1980, in a 5-0 decision, the Arizona Supreme Court overturned the death penalty sentences of Max Dunlap and James Robison and set aside the verdict. My name is Donald Harris. In 1980, I was practicing law in Phoenix, Arizona. With regard to the overturning of the Dunlap and the Robeson cases, I can't tell you why at this juncture they went ahead and reversed it, but it was apparent from the ruling at the time that there were so many flaws and errors in the case that were perpetrated by the prosecution. That was the Attorney General's office that uh, this, and you've got a death penalty case, which is looked at a little more carefully than a shoplifting case. And the Supreme Court, obviously, five to zero, found that there were so many errors perpetrated by the state, by the prosecution, they reversed the case. Jonathan Marshall, Pulitzer Prize-winning editor of the Scottsdale Progress, the only Arizona-based newspaper sympathetic to the investigation, wrote in an editorial for the Progress, If justice is to be obtained, and if the truth about the killing is to be known, 
It is essential that all information now should be revealed. This should be done even if it embarrasses the prosecution and prominent members of the community. So, because of the Arizona Supreme Court's decision to reverse and remand the death penalty convictions, the sword of Damocles would still be hanging over Max Dunlap's and James Robison's heads. In other words, they could still be retried for the murder of Don Bowles. But for the Dunlap family, their nightmare seemed as if it had ended. I think... <laughs> I can't exactly remember who told me that the, or where I heard that the verdict was overturned because there was so much screaming going on in my house. I don't think anybody knew what had happened, like, but it was a happy scream and, you know, we weren't, um, for the last years we were not used to getting good news. So, um, I remember everyone dancing around and screaming and, oh my gosh, the excitement of it all. And um, it was an early afternoon-ish thing. And we all, um, one of our favorite restaurants that all the family went to was a little Mexican food place called Jordan's that was around the corner and down the street. And so we all decided we were gonna go celebrate because we had no idea. We didn't think dad was coming home till the next day. So we were going to celebrate. At some point while we were there at the restaurant, my dad came home. We weren't there, no one was there. And uh, so he ended up, I guess, going back to Jordan Green's house, the attorney, and staying there and um, and talking to him before, and he didn't come home till later that night. But, um, wow, there were so many people that were there to celebrate his homecoming. And I remember Lake Headley and his, um, and Terry, and then also, Don Devereaux was there. Um, it was one after another. Just all of his friends came. It was just, um, it, it was an amazing night. I do remember that the, ple the news recaster reporter showed up in our driveway and knocked on the door and I opened it and she said, um, you know, we just want to get an interview of your family. Or, and there was so much screaming and stuff going on that uh, when I opened the door, they asked a silly question, are you happy? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> we're happy, we're ecstatic. So it was kind of an odd, um, um, a lot of chaos probably that day uh, in every which way. But the funny part was is that when my dad came home, no one was even there. And um, when we came home and he came home, oh my gosh, it was, it was, a, it was a fun night. It was a great night. Max Dunlap was a free man, thanks to the efforts of his family, his friends, and private investigator Lake Headley. Lake was still reveling in the outcome of the case three months after Max came home, but soon Lake would realize that the hornet's nest he kicked would come back to sting. As he recalls in his book, My apartment was on fire, but I didn't wake up. The smoke kept me under. Lucky for me, my fiance ran outside and told the neighbor to call 911. She couldn't wait for the fireman to arrive and went back in the burning apartment to save me. She collapsed at the foot of my bed, unable to wake me. She was on fire when they pulled her out and I remained unconscious. Apparently the neighbor asked the fireman, they're going to be okay, aren't they? The fireman said, I don't think so. Both their hearts have stopped. Lucky for me, they got mine started again. My fiance's too, 
but she was burned over 80% of her body. It would be a long and painful recovery, if you could call it that. It was arson, plain and simple. The arsonist opened a can of ether next to our hot water heater, closed the door to concentrate the fumes, and turned on two hot water faucets. Once the hot water tank emptied, the pilot ignited the fumes, turning the apartment into an inferno. The question was why, and the answer was apparent when I discovered all my files on the Bulls investigation had gone up in smoke, and whatever was left the Phoenix PD scavenged from the rubble. My beloved fiancé would be scarred for life and I'd come as close to death as I ever wanted to be. It was time to get out of Dodge. The firebombing of Lake Headley's apartment was an indication that this case was far from over. The people who had the most to lose by the truth coming out were just getting started. And a new trial for Max Dunlap was all but inevitable. More on this next time in the final episode of The Patsy. The Patsy is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced, reported, and written by Chris Leach and Adam Prince, and directed by Chris Leach. Executive produced by Nat Mundell, Karen Graham, Robert Midas, Caitlin Brown, and Dan Benamore. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by John Higgins, with additional editing by Nick Masidi and Andres Coca. Narrated by Joshua Molina. Cast credits available in the show notes. Original music by Durlis Gonzalez. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening, and subscribe now for future episodes. When 27-year-old Gretchen Fleming leaves a West Virginia bar with a former police officer on a winter night in 2022, she's never seen again. Diligent investigators close in on an ex-cop with an unlikely story and an unsettling reputation in a recent episode of the Unsolved True Crime podcast, Last Seen Alive. Last Seen Alive is a true crime podcast researched, written, and hosted by crime analyst Leah Owens. Cases covered include disappearances, homicides, and suspicious deaths, all of them unsolved and all of them in need of tips from the public. Recognizing that the right piece of information can sometimes be the difference between a cold case and resolution, Last Seen Alive exists to bring public awareness to cases that need it. Listen to Gretchen's story and more than 100 other gripping mysteries as told by a working crime analysis professional. Find Last Seen Alive wherever you listen to podcasts.